0: Hey, I'm so glad you're hanging out with us uh, this weekend. And I'm Dan, one of the pastors here at the Norton Camps of Grace Church. And if I've never met you, send us an email. Let us know that you're watching. If you don't have a church home, love for you to come hang out with us here at Grace Norton. We have services 8 o'clock, 9.30, 11 o'clock. We also then have one Sunday night for those who work first shift and things like that. And that is 5.30. If you come, I'd love to meet you. So make sure you come up, slug me in the arm, introduce yourself to me, and uh, We're in this series, Dangerous Prayers, and hopefully you've been checking that out. Hopefully you watched last week. Pastor Ethan did an incredible job leading us. Uh, He confessed to us his speeding ticket out here on Greenwich Road, right? So that was good to hear. Uh, And I get asked this all the time. Is he your son? No, he's not my son. Uh, Apparently people think he... Uh, sounds like me occasionally, but he's not my son. But man, he did a great job leading us in that conversation. What we're saying is, what if we jump off the merry-go-round of these safe prayers that we're used to praying, jump onto the roller coaster of faith-filled, dangerous prayers? Or we use this illustration, what if we jump out of the belly of the plane of complacency and same old, same old faith experience, and we did this like, free fall of surrender and commitment throwing the full weight of who we are into the full weight of who God is, all his promises and who he says he is and what he can do. What if we did that? Uh, so we're saying it's not about praying just longer, better prayers. It's about praying different prayers, even we would say dangerous prayers, prayers like search me, test me, things like that. Or, or what about this? Your will be done, not mine. Or, or how about this? Bless us so we can bless others so that we can bless you, bring glory to your name or last week, forgive us, doesn't stop there as we forgive others. want to take that a step further. Uh, my wife and I, every week, uh, do our best to go out on a date night. Last night, as I'm uh, taping this, last night happened to be that night, and she has uh, got this thing where we have these cards that... Occasionally, we'll take, and when we get coffee after dinner or whatever we're doing, we'll just kind of go through those cards. It's fun. Uh, some of the questions are silly and stupid. What's our favorite vacation that you've ever taken? Uh, if you could go anywhere in the world, where would you go? Stuff like that. Uh, what's your biggest fear? What's your biggest dream? I'd recommend doing it. Occasionally, you can count on it with games like this or little uh, exercise like this. They'll ask, if you found a, a lamp with, with a genie and three wishes, what would your three wishes be? You ever answer that? What would it be? Go ahead. Take a minute and answer. What would it be? Like, if, if if a genie popped out and says, Your wish is my command, right? What would your wish be? It's interesting. Uh, but I got to thinking this week, what if God said that to you? Like, what if God said, uh, ask me for whatever it is that you wish and, and, and I want to what what if God said that? The fact of the matter is, it happened. It happened to a real guy, his name is Solomon. Can I show you this really quickly? It says this, that night God appeared to Solomon and said to him, ask for whatever you want me to give you. There it is. Solomon answered God, you've shown great kindness to David, his father was David, and you've made me king in his place. Now, Lord God, let your promise to my father, David, be confirmed for you've made me king over a people who are as numerous as the dust of the earth. Here's his request. Give me, say it with me, give me wisdom and knowledge that I may lead this people. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? He's saying, I'm in deep weeds. I am in over my head. Give me, what? Wisdom. God commends Solomon for this. God literally answers this prayer for Solomon. Solomon becomes what many have said is the wisest man to ever live apart from Jesus. He's credited, Solomon is credited with writing most of what we call the wisdom li- literature or much of the wisdom literature. Uh, book of Proverbs, much of it attributed to Solomon. Uh, in the book of Proverbs, you find the value, the treasure, the importance of wisdom. Let me give you a smattering. Do not forsake, there it is, wisdom. She'll protect you, love her, and she'll watch over you. Uh, here we go, Proverbs 3. Blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding. Uh, Proverbs 16, how much better to get wisdom than gold, to get insight rather than silver. This idea of wisdom, the prayer that Solomon prayed for wisdom is one that we're encouraged. What if we, what, what if God were to ask us, what do you want? What would you say? You see, the same prayer Solomon prayed is one that we're encouraged to pray. Let me show you what I mean. This verse gets quoted tons of times. Now, sometimes you aren't sure where they're quoting it from. But if any of you lacks wisdom, you should what? You should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it'll be given to you. If any of you lacks wisdom, raise your hand if that's you. do You ever lack wisdom? Come on. So if you lack it, ask for it. What's that prayer? So you say, pray for wisdom. If you lack it, lack it ask for it, and he'll give it. That's interesting. It's almost the same thing going on there that we see going on with Solomon. I think it leads to what our dangerous prayer today is, give me wisdom, give me wisdom. Seems like a great prayer, it is. Seems like a virtuous prayer, it is. Seems like a prayer that God invites, he does. Seems like even a prayer that God will answer, he will. (laughs) So then the question is, okay, Dan, what makes this prayer so dangerous? Seems like a virtuous, good, invited prayer that he's going to answer. What is it that makes this so dangerous? Because this prayer, hang on, this prayer is not as tame as it appears to be. And the reason I would say that is this, is because when you read James 1, 5, look at this, this is the street address. It's found in James chapter 1, verse 5. But when you read a verse, the street address, you got to realize that that verse, which happens in a street address, actually exists in a zip code or a neighborhood. And when you read the neighborhood, you realize that that prayer is attached to something very important because that prayer starts this way. Consider it pure joy. We'll come back to that. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, Not if, but whenever, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. First and foremost, it's important to see that asking God for wisdom is right on the tail end of James letting us know there will be troubles in my life. There will be trials in my life. It's a prayer that we're encouraged to pray when we're in over our heads. That's what the prayer is about. He says, you see it, he says, whenever you face trials, you ought to write this down somewhere, no slide for it. Trials, troubles are inevitable. It's not if, it's whenever, for some of you watching this, I don't know all of you, I probably know some of you, for some of you, the trials and troubles in your life, maybe they're in the rearview mirror right now, like, like you just came through a time. There are some of you, quite frankly, that the trials and troubles, whenever, they're in the windshield, they're coming somewhere down the road, around the bend, somewhere down the road. And I would bet you there's some of you that you're driving right through them right now. Wherever you fit into that, we are fellow sufferers. Like If you're watching this with somebody, look at them and say, we're fellow sufferers. Like, no one's exempt whenever you face trials. I love that about the Bible that it, is, it never skirts it. It never sugarcoats it. It is a ribbon, a theme in the Bible. Jesus actually said, in this world, you'll have what? trouble. Peter said, don't be surprised when you face fiery trials. The Bible never sugarcoats it. You see, trials are inevitable. Can can we say this? Can we say this? Trials are unpredictable. If you have your Bibles open, just circle that word. I have it circled here. Circle that word, face. Face. Uh, That's the same word you'll find in the parable of the Good Samaritan. You ever heard that? When the man fell into... The hands of robbers and thieves, same Greek word. All that tells me is this, is that trials are unpredictable. No one schedules their problems. Nobody plans out their pain. Nobody puts their trials and troubles and suffering on a calendar. Nobody wakes up, says this is a good day for a bad day. Nobody says, hey, I think next Tuesday would be a great day for me to get a bad diagnosis. Nobody does that. You see, they're inevitable whenever and they're unpredictable when you face. They're assorted. Look at what he says. Many kinds. They're trials of many kinds. They're like Baskin-Robbins. They come in all kinds of flavors. All trials and troubles are not the same. Yours are different than mine. Mine are different than yours. We are fellow sufferers with unique sufferings. Say that again. You, we, you and I, So I don't know if I know you or not, but we're together in this. We know each other now, right? We're in this experience together. We're fellow sufferers. But your suffering is unique from my suffering. That's why one answer doesn't fit all. That's why comparing our sufferings and our trials and our troubles, not really that helpful because they're unique. It's why we need wisdom. Because my trials are inevitable, because my trials are assorted, and because they're unpredictable, I think what James is saying, if you lack wisdom, and you will, because you'll be in over your head, ask God for it. He'll provide it. So what are we praying? Well, look look at what he says. He says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, let that finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. God's doing something. Here's what I'm asking. When I ask God for wisdom, I'm asking God to help me not just survive my trials, but to thrive. I'm asking God, don't allow my trials and my troubles to define me, but refine me. I'm saying, God, give me wisdom. I don't want to waste my trials, my inevitable, unpredictable, assorted trials, but I want to cooperate with what you're trying to produce in the middle of them. What I'm praying when I say, God, give me wisdom, is produce maturity through my trials. Produce maturity. That's what he says. He says that you may be what? Mature and complete. I'm saying, In my trials, through my trials, would you produce maturity? The inevitable, the unpredictable, the assorted trials that you and I face, what he's saying is, I'm not going to whine, I'm going to ask God for wisdom. Not simply change my circumstances, change me. It's interesting, isn't it? Trials are extremely neutral. I've been a pastor for 30 years. Trials are neutral. What I mean by that is, all kinds of inevitable, un- they just happen. But I have found that the way people navigate and respond to them are not neutral. Can I say that there are people who go through all kinds of trials and troubles and for some, it destroys some families. But trials and troubles for others, it's the glue that holds them together. There are some people, it ruins their faith. Other people, it, trials and troubles refines their faith. There are some people, they just wanna get over it but there are many people that become someone different because they decide to go through it. Now, there are some people that in the middle of trials and troubles, they get angry at God, whereas other people, it produces this awe and intimacy with God. There are some people that through their trials, they become bitter, but there are others that through their trials, they develop this deep abiding joy. You see what I'm saying? Some of you, it's what you're steering in right now. He's saying, I-, I want you to produce maturity. So so that's why we pray for wisdom. So so how does that happen? Well, he gives us some hints. He says, count it pure joy. What's that about? Can, can we just say that, that he's giving us an oxymoron here? Count it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. That's what he's saying. That's an oxy, you know what an oxymoron is, right? You know what it is? like when you put two words together, they don't go together, like opposite, like jumbo shrimp, pretty, ugly, good grief, right? That's an oxymoron. This is an oxymoron. Count it pure joy whenever I face trials. Like that doesn't even seem to go together. Now, what's he saying? Stay with me on this. Take you the deep end. We'll pop back out. What he's saying when he says count it pure joy, you can forget this later, but it's the, the grammar of it is important. It's what it's what is called the aorist imperative. You're like, ah, what's that mean, right? Here's all it means. Decide now for when it comes later. Decide now to count it pure joy for the trials that are coming in your windshield down the road. You can count on this. It's a, an accounting kind of thing. You can put it in the deposit column, make an intellectual appraisal, write it in. I'm going to count it pure joy whenever I face trials. Put it in that deposit column. This is not a stupid, cheesy, spiritual smiliness about us. That's like, oh, this is great. So I'm saying it's an intellectual decision. It's a choice of the will. Count it pure joy. Here's what I'm praying. God, give me a predetermined perspective when I face my trials. Give me a predetermined, count it joy. He says, because you know. Hey, I'm going to teach you something. It's what you know. It's what I know that determines how I go through pain, suffering, trials, and testing. It's what I know that determines how I go through pain, trouble, sufferings. I can be real about how I feel for sure, need to be, but I grow through my trials because of what I know. I need to be real about how I feel. He says, count it joy because of what you know, not how you feel. That doesn't mean you and I disregard our feelings. Sometimes these things are just hard and we feel a certain way. But I need to be careful of following my feelings. You tracking with me? I need to be careful of that because my feelings will deceive me. They'll shipwreck me. That's why he says, I want to predetermine I'm going to count it joy because I know you're doing something. You're producing something. You're at work. He says you can go through this counting it joy because of what you know. God's producing something even if I can't feel it. I remember years ago, we had this thing here. It was like kind of a, we had a painter come and he was doing this painting and it was part of a service we were doing. And, and I remember I was sitting in the audience when this was going on and, 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 and I knew the painter and I had full confidence in him, but he's up there painting. And as he's painting, you know, we've got all these people in the room and, and he's painting and I'm like, I, it looked awful. I mean, I'm like, oh my goodness. I, I mean, I can't believe I felt bad for him. I felt bad for everybody there because you can see people like, they're looking at the thing, what, what is that? He got done with the painting. Like, like it, he, he puts the last touch on it, and it was like, I think, that I, I think I could have done that. And then he did something that I'll never forget. He took that painting, which looked awful. It looked like all this disconnected colors just splashed on the canvas, and he turned it upside down. And when he did that, all of a sudden, the picture he was painting was crystal clear. See, I think sometimes that's what happens when we're going through trials. It's like, I don't know, this looks terrible. God, what are you doing? I feel bad for you. I feel bad for me. It feels like a big old mess. It feels like all the colors are just kind of blurring together. I can't feel and see what you're doing. And yet he's painting because God says we live in this upside down world. And what God does is he turns out things like, I'm doing something. You didn't You didn't sense it. You didn't know it, Right? You see, he has a perspective I can't always see. You ought to write this down somewhere. You ought to write this down. Your theology needs to determine how you view pain and suffering. Your pain and suffering should not determine your theology. That's what happens. A lot of people, they go through pain and they make determination about God. What he's saying is give me a predetermined. God, you are, I'm gonna count it all joy. So whatever's in the windshield around the bend, that's what I'm gonna do. Doesn't mean I can't be real about how I feel. So he says this, let then perseverance finish its work. Did you see that in there? He says, let it finish its work. Sometimes we wrongly think that if my circumstances would change, then I would grow in my faith. Yet, can I suggest this, that many times it is my circumstances that are the very thing that God uses to grow my faith. This is the difference between people who just want to get over you. Ever ever hear somebody say this, I'm over this already? You ever hear somebody say that? And and what he's saying is, no, no, don't want to just get over it. Why not? Let's get through it. he says, let it finish its work. What am I saying? You got to write this down. God, give me a persevering patience as I go through my trial. God, give me a persevering patience. My trials or an opportunity to put my faith to the test. Can we just say it this way? It's easy to develop love when everybody in my life is lovable. But it's a different thing when I work beside somebody, or somebody's part of my family, or somebody moves in next to me that's not that lovable. See what I'm saying? So it's easy just to like, I'm going to remove myself from that. And he's like, well, what if I want to develop this deep, resilient love in you. Uh, I would say this. It's easy for us, I think. It's easy for us to be patient when everything in our life and everyone in our life is tolerable. But the way he's going to develop patience isn't, poof, you're patient. It's going to be when those people come into your life that are less than tolerable. They're a little abrasive. They're like holy sandpaper. Don't look at them. (laughs) Right? Right? I think it's easy to have hope when everything feels hopeful in your life, but it's a different thing when it feels like there's no hope. It feels like everything seems dark. It's easy to have faith when there's no questions. You just got to skip through life. I don't have any questions, but it's in the middle of those doubts that you have. And some of you watching this, you have doubts. That maybe if you give me this persevering patience as I go through this, that's where This resilient, deep, substantive faith will begin to develop. It's easy to trust God when all is well, but what about when all is not well? It's easy to say Jesus is all I need when I have all that I want, but it's different to say that Jesus is all I need when he's all I have. See what I'm saying? It's not always an explanation for why you're going through what you're doing, but It is saying, I believe God is doing something and he has a perspective I don't have. He's involved and I know he's producing something even if I don't understand it. I heard a guy say it this way, when there's no test, there's no testimony. Or maybe another way to put it is this, this guy went on to say that you can be a Christian, I'm gonna do this, you can be a Christian and not suffer. You can be a Christian and not suffer. But what he said was this, you cannot be like Jesus and not suffer. You you can't be like Jesus and not suffer. Philippians 3 says, I want to know Christ, power of resurrection, fellowship of sharing in his suffering. You see, God's not most interested in my convenience, my comfort, but my Christ-likeness. He's developing something. He's producing. That's what it means to be mature and complete. Produce maturity. Make me more like Jesus in the middle of this. Look what he says, happy then. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person received the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Those who love him, I think, goes in connection with persevering. I'm gonna persevere because of my love for Jesus. God produced maturity through my trials. That's not all he says. Give me wisdom. Remember, it's in a zip code. It looks a little further in the zip code of the passage when tempted. Not if tempted, when tempted. Raise your hand if you've never been tempted. If you have your hand up, you were tempted a lot just now and you gave in. (laughs) When tempted. No one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, has a grandchild, gives birth to death. Right? What's it telling us? Well, it's interesting. What he's saying is this, give me wisdom in my temptations. It's not if I'm tempted; it's when I'm tempted. What he's saying is, produce purity in my temptations. God, would you give me wisdom? Let me say a couple of things about temptations. Temptation—I don't know what you think about them—is not a sign of spiritual immaturity. Did you know that? Sure, it's not. If if you're somebody who's being tempted, uh, that's not a sign of spiritual immaturity. Can't be. Jesus Christ Himself was tempted. But temptation can actually be an opportunity for God to produce a deeper devotion, or I would say spiritual purity in my life. So what I'm asking God to do is produce a purity, a devotion, a single-eyedness, a devotion that is committed to Jesus, the one I'm following, produce this purity in my temptations. And so that's why he says what he says here. He says, when tempted, I'm explaining what's happening. He's saying, I want you to produce purity. What am I praying then? Here's what I'm praying. God, explain my sin so I can stop excusing it. God, explain my sin. Give me wisdom. Can can I just say this? Can you see if you agree with me? Talk back to me here a little bit. We have become an excusing culture. Uh, We've become a blaming society. Have we not? Like, what we do with sin when we give in to temptation is it becomes easy to excuse it. Well, you know, I was tired. Well, you know, I got pushed too far. Or we blame it. Well, if it hadn't been for, right, it's easy to blame somebody. So we've become an excusing culture, a blaming society, or maybe a fair question is have we? Because this idea of excusing and blaming is as old as the history of mankind do you remember the story beautiful garden Adam, Eve this one tree trust me I'm going to give you all this beautiful stuff and then Satan comes in the lure of the lie God's holding out on you God's not a good God he's not giving you the best of and she partakes of the fruit gives it to her husband eyes open God comes says where are you we talked about this two weeks ago And when they finally have a dialogue, what does Adam say? He said, the woman that you put here. He not only points to the woman, but he starts to blame God. If you hadn't put her here, I think I'd be okay. You see, this idea of excusing and blaming is as old as time. There's several things going on here. When he says, when tempted, that is the same word used for trial. That's interesting can be translated trial when you face trials of any kind tempted that is the same Greek word. your trials can become temptations but I must not make the mistake of confusing the occasion for the cause that's why he says when tempted I got to be careful not to blame God because what happens is well God I wouldn't have given in if that you put that in front of me. I got to be careful, let me say it this way, not to mistake the occasion of the trial for the cause of giving in to the temptation. you saying, Dan, explain that. My mind's blowing right now. Well, uh, if your algebra teacher gives you a test and you fail the test, if you blame the algebra teacher, it's your fault I failed the test because you gave me a test, you've just blamed the occasion of the test For the failure. When the test is given for one reason and one reason only. To see what's inside of you. To see what you've studied. And the cause for failing the test was that you didn't study. You see, I can't confuse the two. Not only that, but I think what James wants us to know is that there is one reason that you and I sin. Jonathan Edwards said it this way, you never sin, but for one cause, you want to. Just let that sink in. Uh, I sin because I want to. Jonathan Edwards was a brilliant theologian in the 1700s. And he says, you never sin, but for one cause, you want to. Some of you are like already making like, well, Dan, let me give you a hypothetical. I had to lie. My boss said he would fire me if I didn't lie. So I was left with no choice. And Jonathan Edwards would say, no, no, not true. He's saying this, that you wanted to keep your job more than you wanted to tell the truth. I think it's, it's fair. So let's just say this, right? I'm saying God explain my sin. So I stop excusing it. But I think there's something else that the passage teaches us. It teaches us that sin is not simply uh, come as a result of a temptation to break the rules as much as a temptation to step out on the relationship. Sin is not breaking the rules as much as it is stepping out on the relationship. He uses a word here and the word that he uses is, but each person, verse 14, if you have your Bibles open, is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire. Very graphic sexual word, talking about the lust of my heart. And that's what leads him to, so it's like it's like this adultery. It's like I'm committing, I'm stepping out on the relationship. And then after the desire is conceived, boom, it gives birth to sin. So that's, I act on it. So sin is acting on the temptation. Temptation is not sin. But then when I sin, that has a grandchild it gives birth to death which makes this more interesting to me when he says don't be deceived then every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created every good and perfect what is from above coming down from who father I think that's interesting because if sin isn't just breaking rules, but stepping on a relationship, it's choosing the lure of Satan's lies over the good gifts of the Father. That has been as old as time. So here's the deal. When I say give me wisdom in the middle of my temptations, what I'm saying is this, God help me long for your good gifts over the lure of Satan's lies. You see, that word lust of the heart can also be translated this passionate longing. And so God, I want to say yes to the good gifts of the Father. Overcoming temptation and sin is not just saying no to the wrong things, it is saying yes to God and his better vision for my life, for your life. Uh, There's an old author, Thomas chalmers in his book the expulsive power of a new affection he says it this way the best way to overcome the world and sin and temptation is not with morality or self-discipline those things are important and good but christians overcome the world by seeing the beauty and the excellence of christ they overcome the temptation the world by seeing something more attractive than the world namely christ i'm choosing a better yes I'm longing for the good gifts of God's better vision for my life. That's what it means. You see, the fact of the matter is, Satan is a liar. He's a deceiver. He's a thief. He's a murderer. And so, spiritual purity is not just saying no to a list of rules you know, temptations or whatever—it's—it's not just avoiding Satan's lies, but it is saying yes to God's good gifts. It's saying yes to God's invitation. It's saying yes in faith to God. Just think about this in my marriage, uh, purity in integrity, in my relationship with Jennifer, that's my wife's name, is not me just going around and saying, I'm gonna say no to, this, no to 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 this woman, no to this. That uh, Certainly that's a part, right? But spiritual maturity or sp- uh, purity in my marriage is gonna come by saying yes to Jennifer. I'm gonna run into that relationship. I'm gonna give myself completely fully to her. That's what it is, right? That's so what he's saying here. You see, Satan is a deceiver and the lure of the lie. That, I would say that scene is being played out in 100, 200 different ways right now with some of you that are watching this. The lure of the lie, the lure of Satan, somehow setting the hook, the bait, so that the desires of your heart, boom. And what happens, the minute is that you partake, Gives birth to sin and that sin leads to death. Like the death of trust, the death of a relationship, the death of whatever. And eventually it's, it's just talking about a spiritual death. What he's saying is this. It's like, God, help me. Replace that with a longing to trust that you're a good father with a good vision for my life. To long for your good gifts. There's something else I want to show it to you and then we're done. But if you lack wisdom, produce maturity through my trials. Produce purity in my temptations. You should ask God who gives. Without finding fault, it'll be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. That's interesting to me. What's this about? Uh, he's saying asking God for wisdom in my trials and my temptations. Sure, develop maturity, purity. Sure. But he's saying this, wisdom is not just simply knowing the right answers. It's not just knowing more information, but it's believing them, not doubting, obeying. In fact, a little later in James 1, he says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Give me wisdom. Well, don't merely listen to the word. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says, is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror. After looking at himself, goes away, immediately forgets what he looks like. Just forget, it. you know, I read it, went to church, okay? But whoever looks intently in the perfect law that gives freedom continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they'll be blessed in what they do. There's that blessing again. What's the prayer? God, produce maturity through my trials, for sure. God, produce purity in my temptations, for sure. I think wisdom is this. God, replace my half-hearted hesitations <laughs> with wholehearted devotions. I think that's what he's saying. What if? He says, don't merely listen to the word, but he says, what? Do what it says. What if he's saying that wisdom is not just knowing the Bible, but actually doing it? What if James is saying that wisdom is not about getting more and more information, that's There's a place for that, but it's about a constant transformation. What what if that's what he's saying? What if James is saying that when you and I ask for wisdom, we're saying, God, I'm willing to walk with you in my trials, I'm willing to walk with you and trust you in my temptations? What if, just, just, just consider this, what if he's saying wisdom is responding to what we read? What if he's saying wisdom is actually heeding what we hear? in the word of god what if he's saying that even when i don't understand all that god is doing i'll trust and follow him anyway when the picture looks like it's a mess i'm going to trust that he's going to turn right side up what needs to be turned right side up what if wisdom is saying that even when i don't agree with god oh oh even when i don't agree or no one around me agrees with what god says I will surrender to him anyway. What if that's what he's saying wisdom is? You see, the assumption is, if I was reading this right, that we are listening to the word. You are right now. Somebody's preaching the word. But here's the difference. Some of us respond and others don't. You see, here's what I have found in 30 years of ministry. Many people pray for wisdom and here's what they do is they think here's the way it happens. I pray God would give me wisdom and it's like this magic poof genie. I'm wise. I think if I'm reading this right. I pray for wisdom, and then I actually start walking with God by listening to what he says and doing what he says, listening and following, listening and following, listening and following. And I start walking with God in the trials that are ahead. I start walking with God as I face the temptations that I will. You see, this sounds like James's half-brother, do you know his name? Have you ever met him? Jesus. He talked about two guys that were building a house. Do you remember that? One guy built it on the sand, one guy built it on the rock. Both houses represent lives. He said the storms came, the winds blew, this house fell, this house stood. He said the difference was this, both guys heard the word This guy heard it, did nothing. This guy heard it, followed it, heard it, heeded it. He read it, responded to it. You see, what if that's what wisdom is? Is walking with God begs a question. Maybe the prayer is, God, give me wisdom. Will you show me where I am hesitating? what is it that you are pretty sure God wants you to do or has showed you in his word that you haven't acted on? It's easy when we go through trials and troubles to hesitate, to say, hey, I'll get serious about God once we get through this. And what if he's saying, no, as you go through that is what I'm asking you to do, is to get serious and walk through that door. Or maybe, God, would you show me what I'm just ignoring and disregarding it's easy in the middle of temptations to excuse and blame and disregard. And I've got to ask myself, God, I wonder what I'm rationalizing, justifying right now. You see, it's willing to walk with God. So, what in the world does that wisdom look like when it shows up? Can I just show you this real quick? James 3, he answers this. Who's wise and understanding among you? I'd love to know who he's answering that prayer in. Well, He says, let them show it by their good. That work can mean beautiful life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. What's wisdom look like? It shows up, doesn't just speak up. He says this, but if you harbor bitter envy, selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. He's getting serious. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. He's saying there are people who would want you to think they're wise. Look at my degrees, my IQ, my SAT score. uh, Read my post, whatever it might be. Even people of the world would hold up as wise. And he'd say that many times it's something that is simply an earthly wisdom. It's selfish and unspiritual in nature. And it's even satanic in its origin because it leads to chaos and disruption. We see this playing out in spades. Anger and verbal sparring, tribalism, manipulation, mean-spirited ambitions, fractured relationships, frustrations, favoritism, prejudice, polarization, unresolved hurt, unconfessed sin, wisdom. But he says this, look at this. He says but a wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. What's he saying there? He's saying it's pure that in Christ I see a God who's devoted to me. And so I'm devoted to walking with God. It's pure. It's devoted to counting it all joy when in trials I walk with God because of what I know. And that is this, that the God who's devoted to me is walking with me. It's devoted to saying yes to the better invitation of Jesus It follows, it trusts, it obeys, not just when it's convenient, not just when it's easy, not just when it's comfortable, and not even just when I agree, but when it's hard, inconvenient, uncomfortable, and even when I don't agree. It's peace-loving. Do you see that? It's peace-loving. What does that wisdom look like? It looks like this. In Christ, I see a God that I'm at war with humble himself to make peace with me possible. So I'm going to respond As I walk with God and become a wise person who loves peace, not drama, loves bringing healing instead of stirring up trouble. It's considerate. You could write the word gentle. In Christ, I see the God I can't get to, making his way to me. I have a God who walked in my shoes. You know why? So he could help me. So when I walk with that God, I become wise. And I begin to be somebody who can put myself in other people's shoes. I be empathetic and sympathetic not easily annoyed, willing to move towards somebody in order to understand them so I might apply wisdom. And you see the next word, submissive, submissive. What? That person is somebody who walks with God and in Christ I see God submit himself, gave up his rights for my need. A truly wise person, first impulse is not to demand their rights, but the first impulse is to meet someone else's needs. Wisdom recognizes That just because they have the right to do something doesn't mean it ought to be done. It's a wisdom that's not arrogant and stubborn. It's full of mercy and good fruit that in Christ I see a God who took what I deserve so he could offer me what I could not. True wisdom is eager and willing to forgive and extend kindness and serve not just when I feel like it. Not because others deserve it but because it follows a God who demonstrated it. It's impartial, sincere. In Christ, I see a God who showed up was full of grace and truth. So wisdom is convicted and kind. Doesn't just speak up to say the truth, but it shows up in grace. And he says this then, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. What's the point? Wisdom shows up in a beautiful life, good life, that humbly walks with God in the middle of trials, temptations, and becomes more and more like Jesus. Becomes more and more like Jesus. In my trials, I humbly follow the one who suffered his greatest trial for me, and in doing so showed me how to face and walk through my sufferings. I can't become like Christ without walking with him in the middle of my trials. In my temptations, I humbly follow the one who was tempted and chose a better vision so that I could experience a better vision of abundant and eternal life. Jesus faced temptation. And in my hesitation, I follow the one who wholeheartedly listened to and obeyed the Father. when he said, not my will, but yours be done. And so I walk with God, I listen, obey. God, give me wisdom. Help me to listen and obey as I walk through trials, as I face temptations. God, I pray that you would help us to walk with you today and that you would develop this beautiful life that humbly walks with you that becomes more and more like Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.